Hello, listeners. I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. You are listening to episode number eight of Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story, and son Andy is our producer. I should say son and brother Andy is our producer. There you go. As Caroline and I talk about each family member, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in mind. Our podcasts do include violence and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. So Caroline, you look great. How you doing? Thank you. You as well. I'm doing good. I just, I'm coming off of a one week vacation from work. Um, and I'm, so I'm like very sad to have yeah. not yeah. stay on vacation the rest of my life. But also, you know, reminder that work is a good thing and I like what I do. So. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I remember stuff like that. And um, I'm retired now and it's interesting because I sometimes think about going back to work. And then I think about, you know, the hassle and that there's these other things. But it's just a sign that, you know, everybody needs to stay busy. Just, you know, try to stay busy. Because when yeah. you're not busy, you're you're either busy living or you're busy dying. And that's, I think that's so true. true. <laughs> it is. Well, I'm doing okay. You know, the weather here is cool in the morning and hot, hot, hot in the afternoon. Now, caveat, I should not say that because there are people suffering yes. in our nation, especially down south and Midwest yeah. um, or middle of the country, I guess, northeast. Here to us in the Pacific Northwest, uh, so close to water and mountains, it's it's like 75 is hot to yeah. us. It's been 85, though. So we are experiencing our own slight increase. But in terms of the climate change lotto, I'm feeling like a winner lately. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, we got stuff to worry about. But yes. um, 110 degree weather is not one of them. So oh, 130 in Death Valley, I read. Oh, well, uh, that's why they call it Death Valley. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Okay, so here on Murder Street, uh, yeah. Hearth Home and Homicide, today our episode is entitled Deadly Defiance. So it's important to defy uh, things that are going on in your life that you perceive as unjust, and there are ways to go about that. But today, a homicide is going to occur really more than that. It's just this... Uh, uh, a nuclear explosion in the lives of um, a family. So here we go. We're traveling today to Carl, C Carl Gables, Florida, and it's an upscale neighborhood. And then when I looked up Carl Gables, Florida, where I've never been, um, I realized that an upscale neighborhood is probably redundant to Carl Gables, Florida, because Carl Gables is in the Miami-Dade County it's right next door. I mean, minutes away from downtown Miami. So I think anybody living there is probably going to pay a lot to live there. And uh, John and Susan Sutton and their family that they started. And um, this is our couple. This is the family that we're going to be talking about today. And Caroline, they are loved by their family and friends. They did a lot in the community to make a, a difference in the lives of others. And it's Sunday, August 22nd, 2004, so it's probably pretty hot there. John is a celebrated attorney who has been highly successful in civil litigation, along with his partner and close family friend, Teddy Montoto. Susan uh, used to work as a highly skilled medical professional, very highly trained. She gave all that up to be a mother, Caroline, because that was her lifetime dream. And maybe someday after everything settled down, she might go back to work. But, but, you know, on this day, she's just, you know, feeling like um, I'm living the dream. So the Sutton family is celebrating on this day, later in the evening, uh, son, uh, Susan's birthday. 
And they're also going to celebrate a great triumph that they just had in the courthouse that day for John and Teddy and their law firm. They just won a huge, big case, earned a big fee for their firm, I think like over a million dollars. And this is back in 2004. So, I mean, it's like 10 million now. But anyway, John and Susan are very happily married after meeting on a blind date 30 years ago. And I mean, they just clicked and then they um, got married and they have lived happily ever after. Uh, Maybe not completely. And we'll get into that. At this small gathering, which was hosted in the Sutton's beautiful home, their son, Christopher, and his girlfriend, Juliet, also joined in. Their daughter, Melissa, is away at college, so she couldn't be there. Christopher and Juliet couldn't really stay that long anyway because they needed to leave early to go to a movie. And they made that really super clear and everybody was copacetic with that. So uh, once the party was over, Teddy went home, John and Susan watched some TV together. They relaxed, you know, probably talked about her birthday, probably talked about his victory in court before going to their respective bedrooms. Now, hmm, they loved each other very much, Caroline. And at the same time, they slept apart because John was a snorer. Mm. I, can, I spent many a night on the couch about halfway through my my sleepology to um, get away from snoring. So you don't want to hurt the person's feelings, but you would like to get a little sleep too. So they had gone through that. They now are in separate bedrooms. I'm sure they visited each other from time to time. But Susan was on the phone in her room. She was under the blankets, but, you know, getting ready for bed, but she was on the phone. And John was, you know, similar, getting ready to go to bed. So little did they know that, their everything was about to be destroyed. I mean, destroyed. The man who would come into their home to murder them both was dressed in black from head to toe. He held a Glock 9mm semi-automatic pistol, and this man shot John first in his bedroom, thought he was dead, turned around, went into Susan's room, shot her six times in the middle of her phone call. Jeez. Emptied, you know. Well, I guess you can't really empty a semi-automatic. I don't know how it works, but that's a lot. The killer then started to hear John rustling around in his bedroom and ran back down the hall and emptied the gun into him, making a point to shoot him like a dog or a farm animal. By that, I mean straight in the head. He, in fact, was shot multiple times, shot in the head twice, straight in the head. So these two good people we just heard about are targeted for some twisted reasons. And uh, Susan Sutton was assassinated in her bed. John Sutton shot twice in the head. Caroline, shockingly, he survived. This is kind of shocking to me because it's not just two shots in the head, which, I mean, surviving one shot in the head. So twice is crazy but you were also shot multiple times elsewhere in your body right yeah i mean he had multiple gunshot wounds i don't even know how many i couldn't find anything that said how many times he'd been shot because the focus obviously was on saving his life right with this i imagine when he showed up at the emergency room they thought oh well you know i mean not two much headshots like you the odds two of missing that much important brain matter twice is crazy that's crazy. i don't know i think it an intervention or something Well, nothing was taken from the house, Caroline, not money, not jewelry. And there's no doubt that this was a premeditated effort to make sure that these two people were dead. And so now the question of who could have done it and why is upon us. Just hours after someone broke into John and Susan's home, murdered Susan, tried to murder John, when they got to the uh, to the hospital with John, the, the, his sta- his chances of staying alive were just overwhelmingly negative. They nobody thought he was going to live. Nobody. Uh, there was a forty eight hour episode about this case that I would urge people to watch if you haven't already, where John explains it. He says everybody said it was somewhat of a miracle that I survived. Well, uh, yeah, 
he told that to correspondent Troy Roberts, who I just love. I really like Troy. Anyway, I lost a tremendous amount of blood, he said. They apparently gave me last rites. They thought that I was gone. Wow. Wow. So you're living with, and you've already had last rites. I don't know what that would feel like, but that would be so strange. Yeah. So as I said, Melissa Sutton was 18, a freshman in college. Her mother was dead. Her father had been shot multiple times, twice in the head. And when Melissa arrived at the hospital, she says her father was almost unrecognizable. The fact that I knew his hands, she said, I knew his ears, I knew his skin tone. I could tell that this kind of disfigured person was my dad, she said. He was beloved to her and also was her mother, who now she knows has died. She knew it. this was her dad, but he had a hard time recognizing her because when John Sutton woke up in intensive care, he was permanently blind in both eyes. Whoa. But again, I mean, shot in the head twice still seems like a relatively miraculous outcome. Honestly, he had to have been swollen and just broken. I, I, I couldn't agree more. He said, John said to Troy Roberts, the magnitude of my injury, the facial pain, and the loss of the eyesight, it was just so huge. Oh, my God. That just sums it up. It's just so huge. Well, and he, I mean, all of this after you just were going to go to bed. I mean, that's really what throws you. This has to be such a surreal out-of-body experience. And you were in a high point of your life. That's it. A high point. They were celebrating. Yeah. So in the beginning of his miraculous recovery, John still had not heard what had happened to his beloved wife, Susan. He kept asking his daughter, Melissa, how's mom doing? How's mom doing? But she had been told by police not to tell him about Susan. He said later on, he was told that she had passed away. Now, do they do that because they want him to have a purpose for living? I mean, what what's the objective there? Because part of me feels like that's cruel, but part of me feels like I could understand it also. I'm with you. I had the same kind of thoughts and that there, my, I would only be speculating that he was in such fragile uh, state that they did not want to push him over the edge with a heart attack or a stroke or a, you know, just to fall into the loss of the will to live. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that's just a thing that they always take into account they being doctors, yeah, uh, in how to manage information that comes in on someone with a traumatic injury like this. So Susan's dead, and I really want to talk about Susan because I feel like I can understand her. And who was she, and why was she murdered? Well, she was once the head nurse, Caroline, the head nurse of a surgical intensive care unit. So that says a lot. She must have been brilliant and a leader. Susan gave up her career in the late 1970s when she and John adopted their first child, Christopher. He came home at just two days old, Caroline. Oh, So, I mean, you know, this is one of those situations where back 50 years ago from this, you know, back in the early 1900s, if somebody was adopted at two days old, they never knew they were adopted. Right. Yes. Um, it was only in mid-century and maybe further into the 20th century that people began to realize that that is the birthright of that child to know and to, as they're growing up, make that just part of their story, just like everybody else has a story. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they knew that they were adopted. Um you know, it just points to the the truth that more than anything, Susan Sutton wanted to be a great mother. She wanted to be a mother, and she wanted to devote herself to being a mother, and she gave up a top-of-the-heap kind of, do- of job 
to do it. And Susan's sister, Mary Marrier, told reporter that told a reporter that Christopher coming home was the absolutely happiest day of her life. She told that reporter that I heard her on the telephone. I could hear her screaming from Florida, where this, you know, where they lived, how happy she was and how thrilled she was. She was not holding back. She was just so happy to be a mom. And then almost seven years later, the couple adopted Melissa. So she loved these children so much, Marrier said of Susan. One article, one article I read said that they knew they being the two children, Christopher and Melissa, they knew they were loved. They knew that they would have the very best start in life in being a Sutton. There was nothing Susan and John would not do for their kids. And it was one of these loved kids, Caroline, who murdered Susan. And I'll just tell you right now, it was Christopher. And it's a twisted tale of how he went about it, but he did it. And he tried extra hard to murder John. So let's go ahead now. I've opened the door to this nightmare. Let's go on through that door and talk about it. Why would a son murder his parents when he already had more than most people on the planet? And by more, I mean more safety, more security, more love, more opportunity, best educations, and on and on and on and on. Why would he do that? I have some theories, and I think you will too, and our listeners will have their thoughts. Or, you know, it might be impossible to understand this level of senseless betrayal and horrible pain. Just, you know, selfishness beyond a magnitude than I can understand. Police dissected the crime scene. Susan Sutton's jewelry and John Sutton's wallet were left untouched on a dresser. Nothing of value was taken, and there was a lot of value in that home. So it was obvious to detectives that this killer had one mission, the assassination of John and Susan Sutton. The first detective working the case was Miami-Dade Detective Rosanna Cordero. Remember Rosanna, Rosanna Dana? That's exactly what I was thinking. Ever since then, I've loved that name, Rosanna. But seriously now, she is a detective with Miami-Dade. You know, there are a lot of murders in Miami-Dade County. And um, Rosanna Cordero was on the case. John was still in the hospital. But, you know, Rosanna Cordero, she thought that maybe even though he had a serious head injury, I mean, that's an understatement, that he could help her. But his recollections were vague and confused. Well, hell yeah. He's been shot three times, twice in the head. So, you know, all those shots that were fired at him, maybe he was running around the room trying to avoid the shots. Maybe, I don't know what was going on, but in the end, he'd been shot just three times, but two of them were in the head. Okay. So the the killer thought that, you know, I got him body mass. Right. Well, twice but, in the head, you would think is a definitive period oh, to that, that sentence. second time I mean, back down that hall to shoot him in the head, you bet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cordero decided to interview Teddy Montoto, John's law partner. Montoto told the detective he was on the phone with John's wife, Susan, and that he heard gunfire while they were on the phone. So Teddy Montoto raced to the scene, arriving just after the police. Detective Cordero told Teddy and Susan, told Teddy that Susan was dead and he collapsed in emotions. So, okay, in other words, I'm sorry, but Susan's dead and John has been taken to the hospital and he just collapses. So here comes a curveball or two, Caroline. Teddy Montoto said something surprising. First, he told Cordero that he was a marksman and that he had been shooting a gun earlier that day. He was a competitive shooter. That's something he did as a hobby. Uh, Okay, so now he's a suspect with gunpowder possibly all over him, head to toe. And you're showing up at a scene for people who aren't your family because you were, I don't know, just too many things. And I was on the phone with Susan. Yeah. Yeah. 
Detective Cordero immediately sent Montoto's gun in for testing, and she pushed him for more information about his late-night phone call with Susan. He was not forthcoming with me, said Cordero. She suspected Montoto was hiding something. So he was asked to submit to a polygraph, which he did, and he failed, especially in regards to his relationship with Susan. And, you know, Cordero, she just kept after him until finally Montoto revealed his secret. He did, in fact, confess to having a sexual relationship with Susan, she said. So let me get this straight. This is a guy, Teddy, who, together with John, has built up a highly successful law firm uh, uh, focusing on civil litigation just made a million-dollar fee on one case and was over at their house uh, just that night, you can just imagine how he became a suspect right away. Oh, yeah. But again, you know, his gun didn't match. Thank uh, They were able to confirm that he was not at the Suttons' home during the shooting. And as for the polygraph, police say he failed because he was covering up the affair, hoping to keep it from John. Um, I think that um, this whole situation was that he was in it for the sex. He wasn't there to break up uh, um, a marriage, Susan's marriage to John. Maybe keeping the secret was a thrill. Precisely. They say it's rarely about the actual affair. It's more about the mechanics that surround it, the logistics, the thrills, blah, 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 blah. The newness. Sneaking around. Yeah. Sneaking around. But, (laughs) you know, they say that when people are stressed, they begin to regress in their coping strategies. So when you're super stressed, you go from 42 to 14 right on a bullet train or maybe four <laughs> go younger. i want what i want when i want it that <laughs> and that's what i sound like how did you <laughs> so i mean you know maybe maybe susan and teddy knew that they were doing something illicit and it was the illicit nature of what they were doing that they liked well yeah because she's on the phone with him right i mean when oh, they're that- He's having an emotional affair with her. They're having an emotional affair plus a sexual affair. Right. I mean, she just chit-chatting on the phone. That's it. She spent a lovely evening with her husband, chit-chatting with him in person. He goes to his separate bedroom and then she carries on her next sort of emotional fulfilling relationship or whatever it is for her. Yeah. And think about who they had at this gathering. You know, they had a gathering to celebrate Susan's birthday and the big award that they got that day. There was only Christopher the son, his fiance, Juliet, and Teddy. So he's like family. Yeah. So he's like family. So big betrayal (laughs) there. Big betrayal. On the 48 Hours episode, John was asked how he dealt with that betrayal. And John said, well, I wasn't very happy about it. I was very, very upset. Well, I don't blame him because, first of all, he, this is why I think any kind of an affair, emotional, physical, all of the above, is so dangerously destructive because it's a level of betrayal that creates damage to the brain. I mean, it really, really does in my mind. How can I ever trust John again? Living his, he's living his life. He had a wonderful night with his wife. He thinks those are always wonderful. He has this wonderful friendships that, you know. And then he's shot in the face. He's shot. His wife died. He, all these things happen to him. And then suddenly he has to have this revelation without the betrayer there to confront and kind of work this out with and really kind of get your mental machinations back on track because this kind of stuff throws people for a mental loop as it should because it's a betrayal you cannot. I just to me, I just, how do you do that to someone? I don't know. Shock. Their whole worldview is just totally obliterated it's know. one thing when it's a stranger right but your right. brother you know your law That's even worse it's so true it's just like how's john gonna break up with teddy he owns half the firm 
Well, I mean, Teddy yeah. now has to stand in for Susan too. So, I mean, he's going to get oh, the God. brunt of all fronts from, as he should, but still, it's a rough, don't have yeah. affairs, people. Yeah. I like the way John puts it in a little bitty box. Oh, I was not very happy about it. Very, very upset. Let's move on. <laughs> you can imagine Up what until that like point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Up until that point, John Sutton and Teddy Montado had a strong working relationship. They were like family. And their law firm had just gotten one of the biggest settlements ever, over a hundred, over a million dollars. See how my mind works. To me, big is a hundred, you know. They, no, this is <laughs> over a million. They had been very successful in their civil litigation, and along the way, they had made some enemies. Uh, Detective Rosanna Cordero explained. In fact, John has had death threats against him. So police investigated every one of them, but they were everybody who ever made a death threat or anybody who ever lost because of John Sutton. They all got investigated. They all had alibis. There was nothing there. The lead detective was a detective named Larry Bellew. He was starting to realize that all of these possible enemies of John Sutton and also his law partner, Teddy Montoto, kept pointing to the same person. Because for one thing, every time they talked to somebody who knew John and maybe had a vendetta, whoever they talked to, everybody said, you need to look at Christopher Sutton. Now, Christopher Sutton, the son. So finally, Detective Bellew thought it very odd that fingers were being pointed at John and Susan's son, Christopher, then 25 years old. For months after the shooting, Christopher had been by his father's side, just like glued. And when John left the hospital, he moved in with Christopher. So huh. Christopher was his caregiver. That always freaks me out when we find out that the doting family member is the culprit that always freaks me out because what does it take to do that well I, you know you can never know another person but yeah. there's one thing about never knowing another person but also having an intimate relationship with that person but to find out that you didn't even know the person that you were having the intimate inter, yeah. intimate relationship with because that must have been like fake because their real personality was you know that of a serial killer or whatever yeah. has been hidden yeah. It's creepy. It's just crazy. And the police just kept hearing alarming stories about Christopher. He wanted his parents dead. That is the summation of what came back from almost every interview by detectives. Whoa. He actually choked his mother one time saying that he could kill her, said Bellew. Oh, my gosh. See, now we're starting to peel back some of the layers of what Susan has been going through and, and John as a parent of this person. The son who once seemed so devoted to his father, taking him home from the hospital, uh, caring for him day to day, was now the prime suspect. Um, that, name, that word, prime suspect, oh my God. The prime suspect. It's like, now we're going to be hunters uh, and we're going to go after this prime suspect. Christopher was a bit of a handful from the beginning of his life. He picked physical fights in preschool, Caroline. Uh-oh. Preschool. That's four, five, three. You well, know, you know, it wasn't it's just not, a... It's not a pre-life kind of experience because he was adopted at two days old. So this is not... Oh, no, no, no. A trauma-induced... This is who behavior. his... This is, this is the, his character. Yes. And okay. listen, when you are running a preschool or when yeah. you have a child in preschool, uh, you're going to hear about biting. Yep. Mm -hmm. You're going to hear about kicking. You're going to hear about scraping, hair pulling, hair pinching. pulling. Yeah. But you don't really hear about a three or four year old physically fighting like a boxer, you know, fighting, picking fights. He was in and out of more than a half dozen schools. Schools threw him out at some point. That tells me he was a bully, you oh. know, because that's who gets thrown out of schools yeah. is people who cannot, you know, these kids who don't learn. John Sutton was driving him to school every day, dropping him off at the front door. So I, I'm assuming this was in high school. 
and he was routine, could have been middle school, could have been grammar, I don't know, but he was routinely going in the front door and then going out the back door, engaging in what I can only sum up as to say antisocial behavior. He was not for uh, social uh, norms like kindness and generosity. He was into petty theft. He was into vandalism. Things were out of control. Things were out of control. Caroline, he and some other kids broke into a teacher's house, trashed the inside of the house, spray painted the inside of the house, according to Susan's sister, Mary Marrier. Uh, When he did that and he was caught, he, Christopher, was arrested. Yeah. And the Suttons were sued for damages. Uh, Yeah, that's serious. That's a serious crime in my mind. So, Oh, yeah all the juvenile cuteness you think is going to save you that's an adult crime you committed you got some wherewithal to know not to do that and anything over like $2,500 is like a is like a bigger court right like you go like you can sue people for anything over. oh listen those damages were more than $50,000 that's a lot I mean that's a lot uh yeah that was a lot and I mean Plus that was the back there that teacher, the fear that you're striking in someone when you break into their home. Let's not, let's talk about that intangible not, damage. <laughs> not, not only that, but I mean, it's one thing when you have a child and oh, everything is so great and they're into ballet, they're into Little League, they're into cookies, they're into lemonade stands. They got all this stuff going on. Then when they enter puberty, all hell yeah. breaks loose. That's to true. me, that's normal. But these poor parents, they have been dealing with this boy since preschool picking fights yeah getting thrown out of schools i mean this was like can you imagine where you would be at as a parent if this didn't even come as that much of a surprise that he's going to get arrested for vandalism and he his parents are going to be sued and you know um marrier susan's sister mary marrier says that if christopher did not get his way and I think she's talking about the whole sweep of his life. Hmm. If he did not get his way, he could get extremely angry, extremely angry. And Christopher had a rifle. It was not loaded, but he pointed it one time at Susan and Melissa, his sister, and he told them that it was loaded and he was going to shoot them. And then, I mean, you know, if that happened to me, Change no lot times. I would, I would, you know, that, you know, that joke about my parents, you know, moved and didn't tell me where they went. I, okay. Yeah. That, <laughs> that. Is that one of those cruel jokes from the seventies? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and then one day Susan called John at his law firm. Susan mm-hmm. called me. He said, she just said, John, we've got a problem. In Christopher's room, John was Susan had been cleaning up. She found a note in his room, and it was a plan to kill his parents for their inheritance. Oh, man. Chris, you know, told his parents, that's not, that's not true. That, this is all your fault, Mom. I was just kidding. I'm not serious. How could you think that about me? And, you know, just going to play the, you know, vulnerable narcissist, always has to be on the receiving end of an injustice. This is who he was. This is what he did. But uh, his parents were frightened. They were very frightened at that juncture. They wanted Christopher to get out of their house. And they even got a restraining order against him. He was 16 years old at the time. A restraining order. Christopher State, yeah, I know. It's just like, go live by the river. Yeah. I mean, it takes a lot to do that for a parent. But you you find plans to kill your parents? Dude. For the inheritance? I would have gone to just every authority. I mean, because that's a genuine, if you've had all these things up until this point, and she's calling and she's like, we got a serious problem. They have to know deep down that this is scary. It's starting to get Well, they are frightened. They both... They both told friends and advisors uh, that they are very frightened for their lives. Christopher stayed with a friend, and a couple of weeks later, in this, when he was staying with his friend, uh, 
and their parent and this friend's parents, you know, two men came in and rus- and wrestled Christopher across the lawn of his friend's house and took him away. Christopher was shipped off to Samoa to a place called Paradise Cove. But this was no vacation. It was a hardcore behavior modification program for severely troubled boys. Okay. So now let's just talk about that. I mean. Okay. I mean, my parents moved and they didn't tell me where they moved to is is like light duty, uh, you know, abandonment. Right. Somebody came to my friend's house, wrestled me down to the ground, shipped me off to Samoa. Yeah. After I got kicked out. I mean, they kicked him out and got a restraining order against him. Yeah. Yeah. And then they're like, that's not enough. <laughs> We're going to ship you so far away to a boy's. I mean, now on the flip side of that coin, she's Louise. I mean, they have had multiple death threats up until including finding physical evidence that, that a plan is in place. So I don't blame them. I just wonder if the order is a little out of order, you know, of like. Well, it's just way out there, isn't it? In yeah. other words, you know, I used to work in human resources and it used to frustrate me when managers would give employees their 15th one last chance. <laughs> yeah. And what I used to advise those managers is now you've created an expectation that's actually a legal expectation between the employer and the employee because you are an agent of the employer. So by giving them 15 one last chances, you have never given them one last chance. Right. So we're going to have to work our way through going back to the very beginning of discipline process, coaching and counseling, additional training, and on and on. The same is true here. To me, if they tolerated his behavior, if they paid the legal fines for the vandalism, which they had no choice, they they were in court about it. On the, you know, then they were desperate and they were looking for a solution to get him far away from them because they thought he was going to kill them. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, do I think that John Sutton and Susan Sutton sought out the advice of experts? I, w- I do believe that. I believe they probably contacted some experts and said, how do we get our child away from us, but not just put him on the street, Right? how do we get him the help he needs? Right. And they came up with this Paradise Cove. And yeah. apparently, according to John Sutton, Paradise Cove at that time was highly, highly thought of. Um, a year into this Cove experience, Christopher sent an emotional video message to his parents. And on that video, and it's out there on YouTube for our listeners to do a deep dive, but he's sitting there on the beach, and he's now 17, and he says, all right, Mom and Dad, I wanted to tell you I don't feel like you guys love me. I feel like I've been sent here just to get me out of your hair. You guys still dislike me for some reason, even though my wishes aren't to be here my wishes don't come true. <laughs> it's like I mean, that. For some reason, like he's genuinely confused. This is somebody who can never be wrong. He can never be wrong. Even though he's doing wrong, he can never do wrong. And John and Susan and Melissa, when they got that video, they traveled to Samoa as a family yeah. to see for themselves what it was like there. And John says that his son was happy to see his family, and he seemed happy there. However, the people, the counselors and so forth working at this place told John and Susan that Christopher was not on track to finish the program because of his severe defiance. Christopher was hoping to leave Paradise Cove forever on his 18th birthday, but his father got a court order to keep him another year in order to complete the program. So his father, John, 
was not going to let him leave Paradise Cove until he graduated from Paradise Cove, meaning straighten himself out. Wow. I Well, I have to touch on the energy floating around this because, you know, Christopher's an adolescent. He's a, he's, I don't want to say it's like troubled teen, but he's got some angst in there that I don't understand because, you know, I've never written notes about killing people or pointed rifles at people. And those aren't funny jokes, but, uh, he, you know, Choked he's your got mother. this. Choked yeah, I mean, mother. He, he's got this worldview. And then, but, but I, I think every adolescent has grown up, at least in the Western world, 18th is, 18th is a liberation day. I do what I want. I do what I want when I want to, you know, that kind of thing. So, I can just imagine Christopher in this mind that does not accept guilt or wrongdoing for some reason. I don't understand anyone. Everyone's against me. Everyone else is lying. Right. So he sees this like no one can stop me number 18. I would see it that way. No one can stop me after this. Oh, I I used to see 16 was going to be, I'm going to get my wheels. Right. So I just can't imagine the bubbling rage, right? The little seed of rage in Christopher just growing a little bigger from this. I agree. And, you know, uh, Paradise Cove, what an interesting name. Okay, I get the Cove part, but the Paradise is probably not completely accurate because in 2000, Paradise Cove, with a dwindling enrollment and accusations of abuse, and lawsuits and so forth shut down. But what happened to Christopher there was a long time ago by the time his parents were shot down. So did could he really murder his parents because of Paradise Cove? In fact, when Christopher did complete the program, and he did complete the program, his family was so proud of him, and he seemed to have his act together. He came home and everybody was getting along. It was great. He seemed like a new person. Susan and John bought him a $300,000 condominium. Now, 2000 something for two, 300000 that's going to be a million dollars today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, they bought him this $300,000 condominium. They gave him startup money to start his own business. He got engaged to Juliet, who said that John and Susan treated her like family, and she loved them. She just loved them. Susan taught me about makeup and clothes and all that kind of stuff, she said. She got very emotional with the investiga- with the uh, interviewer who took this clip. You know, John Sutton was so supportive of me. Now, I translate that to mean he gave me money. Yeah. I mean, you know, he gave me support. Right. John even gave Juliet a job in his law office. And for the most part, John and Susan financially supported her and Christopher for years leading up to the murder. So detectives had to track down Christopher and Juliet's alibi to see were they really at the movies? Well, they really were at the movies. And detectives also had a video of them coming into the theater and, you know, no, never leaving. And then after the movie was over, they came out of the theater. And detectives realized that even before he started walking out of the theater, Christopher was on his cell phone. I mean, you know, no talking about, I like that part about this and that. and that. Right. I can't believe that happened in the end. None of that. He was talking on his cell phone. Lead Detective Larry Ballou ordered Christopher's phone records, and he saw a particular number that came up several times. That number came up 331 times in the weeks leading up to and right after the murder. So, you know, a month or so, that's 30 days, and you're calling this person over 10 times a day, or they're calling you. Yeah. The uh, detective... Detective Ballou said, we identified that number as belonging to an individual by the name of Garrett Kopp, K-O-P-P. A man named Garrett Kopp had been arrested less than 24 hours after the shooting of the Suttons for assaulting someone with a gun in another part of Miami, and he was out on bail. So they didn't know yet that he was the shooter. Okay. But they knew that he and 
and Christopher were in cahoots about something big time leading up to the murder. And then not after that. And, uh, when they started looking into him, they realized that he was out on bail for assailing someone else with a gun the day after the shootings of the Suttons. Detective Bellew immediately called the arresting officer of that second thing that Garrett did. And the detective said, now please tell me that you still have that gun. And the officer did have that gun. And it was a match to the murder weapon. And it turned out to be the same gun, in other words, used in the Sutton shooting. Garrett Cop, 21, was brought in for questioning. After six hours, that's not a long interview, Caroline. After six hours, I'll say after just six hours of questioning, <laughs> Garrett Cop confessed. Yeah, you know, he's 21. Come right. on. And well, obviously not smart enough to stay out of trouble after murdering people. I mean, you don't go the next day no, with a murder weapon. No, he's just a bad oh. guy. He, bad guy with a gun. Yeah. So Christopher Sutton ordered him to hit both his parents, or Christopher would do it himself and then turn around and kill Garrett's family. That was his story. He gave up the whole plot. He had maps. He had plot points that shifted and things that happened along the way. And in the end, he said, it just boiled down to go in there and shoot my parents. Just do it. Whoa. So Garrett Cop did it. And he was arrested. But Bellew didn't have enough for a warrant for Christopher Sutton. You know, you can't just go by somebody's confession. You have to match it up with actual evidence. So he needed more than just Garrett's word that Christopher put him up to it. So Juliet Driscoll. That's the fiance of Christopher and Sutton. Juliet Driscoll was brought in for questioning, and under pressure, Juliet did tell officers that Christopher had a deep, deep-seated resentment toward his parents for sending him to Samoa. He believed that he, Christopher, was entitled to have whatever he wanted. He explained it if he wanted this car. He should be able to have this car. If he wanted this condo, he should be able to have this condo. Quote, unquote, I deserve this. They sent me to Samoa. They deserve to pay for what they did. And for the most part, Caroline, the Suttons did pay. I was just, They were. I, I think that they were paying. Was that a living amends for what they had done? Or he came back kind of cured of bad, they thought. Right. Well, he came back willing to play the game, at least, right? I mean. Yes. Yes. But I told I you, mean, man, this, it's that 18, you know, he had a, he had an expectation. This is a disappointment on a level that becomes very dangerous, right? There was that 18, I do what I, you know, I'm free from you. And yet his dad swooped in and kept him under the thumb. I, you know. In addition to all the other things that had happened before. And again, I will say, you know, they're going to pay for what they did. Well, what do you think Samoa was? You were trying to kill them. That was you paying. So like, it's a reciprocity thing. You know, I mean, it was just, it's, it's frustrating that he cannot see beyond the wrong. No, he cannot him. see that. He cannot yeah. see that. Even though he's, he was planning to murder them. Oh, right. that was just a joke. Clearly not. What? Yeah, yeah. Well, you you did it, so we now know that we were right about you. That's right. You know, the other thing about John Sutton, I think that John Sutton and Susan Sutton loved each other. Just they were, they really, really loved and were devoted to one another. And I think that if I were John Sutton and my wife had been choked, my wife had been pushed and shoved and disrespected. And then now I see that he's pointing a gun at my wife and my daughter. Right. Yep. I And then the final coup de grace is finding a written plan. Yes. Uh, to kill the family. For money. For the inheritance. Yes. I just feel like, you know, I understand. I mean... 
how close is Samoa to Miami-Dade? Not that far away. Right. That's not that far away. And so I just, I kind of can understand it, even though it might have been appeared harsh. Right. What about all this other stuff? But you're right, and, they could yeah. have disowned him and put him on the streets, which is what a lot of parents do, even oh, to absolutely. their good kids. So They could have moved. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, they could have done a lot of things. And um, I don't know how much therapy Christopher got. Mm-hmm. I could never find one word about him being in therapy. Okay. Now, theoretically, Samoa is a bit of therapy, but not really. Anyway, uh, he was just fixated. He was just fixated on having what he wanted. They, that you know, again, they paid the rent, they paid the car payments, they paid his insurance payments, Caroline. They paid all of the bills for him and Juliet. They took Christopher and Juliet on their vacations with them. I, I think John Sutton is thinking, keep your enemies closer. Probably. Christopher, Christopher just wanted more and more and more. He wanted to hire someone to kill his parents, she said. He had said it for so long for so many years. They had been together for six years, him and Juliet, by the time the killings occurred. He was fixated on it. He was saying that out loud to her? I want to kill my... I oh, want yeah. to hire someone to come yeah. up. I mean, I mean, to her, it became a drone, just a drone of... Right. That's his way of saying, I want to kill him. I'm going to hire somebody to kill him. She didn't take that seriously. She mm. didn't realize who he really was. She told the investigator, it was, he's like the boy who cried wolf. You know, you hear something so many times, you just don't think anything about it. Right. And then suddenly, before the murder, Susan Sutton refused to pay Christopher's car insurance bill. Okay. So there was a big fight. It was over a bill not being paid, Juliet told Roberts. The, told the, the, uh, Troy Roberts on 48 hours. She, she was also interviewed by 48 hours. The only times he would get really angry would be when they didn't give him what he wanted. Hmm. So he came back from Samoa, uh, hanged in kind of relaxed. I'm just going to float along and I'm going to rip these people off for every cent they have. Buy me this condo, buy me this car, buy me these clothes, take me on vacations, give me some money, pay for my insurance. And one day, right before the murder, Susan Sutton said, no, I'm not going to pay your insurance. Huh. Juliet told police that Christopher was just furious, just furious. Because he knew his father had just received a million dollar plus legal settlement. And with that information, the police had enough to get a warrant for Christopher Sutton. But Christopher was nowhere to be found. Maybe he went back to Samoa. He was on the run for about two weeks before police found him. I think he was just hanging out with friends who would try to support him. There was a trial, of course, and a lot of damning testimony. But when John Sutton, he's got one eye that is sewn shut, Caroline. He doesn't have an eyeball in there. The other eyeball doesn't see anything. He's got, you know, some disfigurement of his face. But he's still John Sutton. And he got up on that witness stand. And he talked about how when he got out of the hospital, he lived with Christopher Christopher took care of him, and then Christopher started to act, tell him things like, I need to be in charge of the money because I feel like you're going to get ripped off by the bank. Mm. Yeah, right. So he he just found it very, very, very hard, he told the jury at the beginning, to think that his son had paid to have him and his wife murdered. But when he looked back on everything, he could kind of see that, yes, my son did this. Christopher decided to testify in his own defense. Now, people who are selfish and self-centered and have no insight into how they uh, are um, perceived by other people, they're going to get up on the witness stand. And that was a gift for the prosecution. 
He was very defiant when the prosecutor was cross-examining him. He denied and denied and denied and denied. And then the prosecutor got into Samoa, the subject of Paradise Cove, Mm -hmm. and the floodgates burst open. And Christopher Sutton just sobbed and heaved and sobbed and heaved and told the horrors that his life was and so forth and so forth. And it went on and on and he cried and he sniveled and, oh my God. Now, were these tears for his dead mother? Were these tears for his father who can't see anymore and who has had a compromised life ever since the shootout. I mean, no emotion, but something bad happened to me and he's going to blubber. It's going to be a snot fest. Sorry. He's going (laughs) to be red in the face, tears and tears and tears and buckets and buckets and buckets up there on the witness stand. Now, how do you think the jury saw that? Do you think juries can think through that, that, wait a minute, your mom is dead. Your dad is diminished and you're crying about having to go to Samoa after you threatened to kill them. That's it. I mean, after all the details that at this point had been levied, no tears, you're really still pretty defiant, which never looks good. It doesn't look good to be defiant, defensive. Um, You know, you just got to like speak your truth or whatever. But I mean, you're so wrapped up in yourself and you're so wrapped up in the Samoa. I think it's because ultimately deep down, there's a, a rational part of this person's brain because we all got it. We just don't exercise it all the time. But that no, Samoa was the des- just desserts that he had earned. But because it was so god awful, <laughs> you know, it probably was a I traumatic know. experience. There may have been abuse. It may have been the worst choice ever. However, he had an active role in that decision being made. So for him to just, like you said, have zero emotions for any other thing that had happened in his life up to that point, but Samoa has. That's his trauma moment. That's his PTSD. He can't move past it. No, he can't move past it. He talk about a grudge. Yeah. But I mean, you know, is it a grudge against your parents when you're showing up at four years old in preschool and beating everybody up? I mean, you know, this started way back in somebody's womb. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's just, you can have a child born to you who is this way. Right. And we hear, we read, we, we podcast about those people. Yeah. So the fact that he was adopted has nothing to do with Mm -hmm. this. Nothing. Mm -hmm. So Caroline, the confessed shooter, Garrett Kopp, he was sentenced to 35 years in exchange for a guilty plea and for his testimony against Christopher. And he had the, he had the maps. He had the details of how the plan changed and this and that. So Christopher was found guilty, of course, because, I mean, there's no, where are the, where is the, um, what do they call that, you know, signs of innocence, right. uh, exculpatory evidence. Oh. There's no exculpatory <laughs> evidence against Christopher, only inculpatory evidence against Christopher. He was sentenced to life with no possibility of parole. His sister, Melissa, says she will never speak to him again. She says, you know, my parents were the best parents, and the fact that one child did something awful does not mean that they didn't love him unconditionally. Yeah, They gave him every opportunity that he deserved, but he did not take advantage of any of it. She said the whole trial opened the wound back up, you know? She's seven years younger than her brother. So she's looking kind of at him as what the blank, right? The loss of my mother, she says, the blindness of my dad and the loss of my brother. That is what he did to my family. As for John's focus right now, his focus, zero revenge. Does he visit his son? No. Asked if he loved his son. No, I loved him at one point. He killed, he killed Susan and he tried to kill me. Yeah. And, um, he's focused right now getting his eyesight back. He is working at Scapin's Eye Research Institute in Massachusetts, 
where they're working on an optic nerve regeneration program that is promising. Now, he's still blind today, but he's he's still seeking and has offered himself as a guinea pig to this group. And at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary, Dr. Joseph Rizzo is ready to start discussing electronic technology, which is implanting a device around the back of the eye that would then transmit what it sees to his brain. So he's got all that going on. But while he waits for a breakthrough, John Sutton, remarkably, continues to practice law. He memorizes his briefs. He memorizes them. He can't read. And with the help of an aide that he brings to court with him all the time, he's winning cases at the same rate he used to. He also has a new love interest. Oh, I'm happy for you, John. (laughs) The world of darkness he now lives in is slowly brightening with each passing day. It's almost like I'm a completely different person, he says. There have been so many changes in my life. And, you know, uh, Troy on 48 Hours asked him toward the end of that episode, It would be completely understandable if you felt sorry for yourself sometimes. He was asked on 48 Hours, do you? Do you feel sorry for yourself? John replied, after thinking about it, it doesn't do any good. I don't believe in feeling sorry for myself because then you're just wallowing in disaster. I wasn't going to sit around for the rest of my life and get bored. So I have done everything I can possibly do without hesitation. You know, I take that to mean I'm trying to get my eyesight back. I'm never going to stop trying. And I learned how to practice law blind. Right. And he didn't just learn how to practice law. He learned, he, he is the same person who used to practice law and built up a fantastic law firm that paid millions of dollars in settlements. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's still that person, but he's had to make a lot of adjustments because of Christopher Sutton and what Christopher Sutton decided to do. So Christopher Sutton's appeal has been denied. That's a celebration. Let's have a party. (laughs) Hitman Garrett Kopp is scheduled to be released in 2035. Garrett? You're redeemable. You told the truth in the end. You're a killer, but you're getting out in 2035. You'll last only 12 more years. Yeah. Plus, he was, I feel like he was coerced into this. And you're right. He was young and, and he was threatened. He was, you know. He told the court. He threatened my family. Yeah, that's it. He said, if I did not do this, that, uh, and he, he has, he has, he feels so, you know, he has expressed deep remorse. Oh, I bet. Um, John Sutton vows that he will keep Cop and his son Christopher behind bars. He doesn't want Cop getting out early. Okay. And he does not want his son Christopher to ever get out. Never to get out. I don't blame him. I don't want him to get out either. Me neither. I don't think he should. He's he's diabolical to me. <laughs> the persona, at least on this. Absolutely. Page. He has no empath. No. He has uh He's impulsive. Yeah. He's selfish. Yeah. Uh, he cannot see any contribution of blame that he has in any situation of his life. When point in fact, every one of us on a daily basis has an opportunity to look at what did I do or not do to contribute yes. to this situation being possible. Right. Or what could I do differently to have an impact on something going on I don't like? Right. Right. Or that doesn't make me feel good or that, you know. Right. Right. So that wraps up the story of deadly defiance that was unleashed on two beautiful people, John Sutton, who still lives and still loves, and Susan Sutton, who deserved the same. And I am so sorry, Susan, that this happened to you and to your, uh, you know, Christopher's sister, Melissa, you know, she's just got a lifetime of grief 
to have to learn to live with. Mm-hmm. Um, so Caroline, today's episode is researched, written, and narrated by Bridget and Caroline, produced by Andy. Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, books, podcasts, episodes about our subject. Our episodes are aired every other week. And if you like us, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. We're on Apple and Spotify. Tell your friends about us in person and by social media. All of these actions help new listeners to find out about us, to find us, and to listen to us. Thank you. We really appreciate our listeners. And don't forget to live and let live. Bye-bye, Caroline.